Hello and welcome to the latest Microphilosophy podcast. I'm Julian Bergini and in this edition I'm talking to John Gray about his latest book, The Immortalisation Commission, in which he examines the human quest for ever longer, perhaps even eternal, life. Gray's main focus is on two strange historical outbreaks of immortal longing. The first was in late Victorian and Edwardian England, when many top-ranking scientists, writers and intellectuals took seriously the idea that life after death might be a natural fact, and who dabbled in spiritualism and the occult in search of the evidence for it. The second was in early Soviet Russia, where the so-called God-builders saw the deification of humanity as a logical extension of the revolution's aims, and whose efforts to abolish death were captured darkly but pathetically in the botched attempt to preserve the corpse of Lenin. Gray also looks at contemporary post-humanists and transhumanists, such as Ray Kurzweil, who envisages a future in which we live forever by uploading digital versions of ourselves to virtual worlds. I got the opportunity to quiz Gray about some of the implications of these ideas for us today when I interviewed him in front of a live audience at the Bristol Festival of Ideas in May. One interesting aspect of a lot of these people who were trying to promote you know, the idea of immortality in one way or another is that actually, in what might seem to be a strange way, there seems to be a very strong misanthropic streak mm. a lot of the time. So on the one hand, you know, trying to extend life, prevent death, seems to be pro-human. There's also this kind of misanthropy. So I wonder if you could tell us, say something about how that misanthropy manifested itself mm. and, and how these two th- things fit together, because they don't seem to fit together very neatly. I, I agree with you, uh, Julian, about this. It comes out in a couple of ways. One is that many of these, both in Russia and in, um, and in Ward in England, seekers after immortality were affected by various versions of eugenic theory. That's to say, they thought that humanity was degenerating, that large numbers of existing humans were horribly defective, or they would sometimes say superfluous, or HGL said inefficient. And in the world they looked forward to, either a later version of our world or in the afterlife, these people wouldn't be there. You know, they would have been removed somehow. So I think that's a kind of rather horrible aspect of it all. But there is, a, in a way, maybe a subtler way, which comes out, I think, in Kurzweil and in the Russian godbuilders, including Gorky. There's a rather nice conversation that Gorky records with the Russian poet Alexander Bloch, which illustrates, I think, if you like, an aspect of Gorky's. I think one could reasonably call it misanthropy. Gorky turns to Bloch and, and says, you know, Bloch, in the future, we won't have bodies. We won't need these ghastly, frail bodies. We won't be human beings of the thought that the sort that we've been so far. In the future, a point will come when we're just electricity, light, intellectual energy, f- sort of buzzing about. And Bloch, who I sympathise with in this, says, what a ghastly thought, Gorky. Fortunately, it'll never happen. It's all a load of nonsense. And, I mean, that's my response. You see, why did Gorky want to s- stop being human, you might ask? Why did he want to stop having a body? Why did he want to stop being a normal human being? And why does Kurzweil want some sliver of his conscious awareness uploaded. Well, first of all, I mean, if someone offered that to me, I, I would say, well, it won't be me. It'll, be, it'll just be some part of my mind which is programmable. And of course, it might also be that even in the context of not, not only when I lose my body, which even though I, I'm old enough for it to be a nuisance nowadays, uh, from time to time, I, I don't really want to lose. I'm quite attached to it. But I would also lose a large part of my own mind because one of the things... I think we've learned, and that you know, even modern cognitive science shows, 
is that a great deal of human creativity comes from parts of our mind that are not easily accessible to conscious awareness and which are not easily programmable or computable. If what survives is just what can be programmed into a computer and then uploaded, it's just a kind of thin cartoon of me as I might once have been. So if anyone wants to create such a cartoon, well, I won't help them. Uh, They're welcome to do it. I don't want to be immortalized in that way. And there is, so in other words, what I say is this kind of immortalism, it's often the people who talk about themselves as transhumanists or even humanists, it seems to me a program for human extinction. It may well be the case that we're going to become extinct. I think we will, like other animals, because in this respect I am a Darwinian. Although I don't take it as the final orthodoxy, I don't, for example, think that Darwin's account of evolution is necessarily true in every part of the universe or every universe that exists. Mm. It's the way things seem to be around here. But we're headed for extinction. But I don't see any reason why we should engineer it by taking some small part of ourselves with the rest being misanthropically rejected. I mean, it is quite interesting. Some of these transhumanists are very overt about happy to see what we go uh, ending. Nick Bostrom leads this Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford University. And he has this slogan, which is quite nice in a way, which says the important thing is not to be human, but to be humane. In other words, it's the values we associate mm. with humanity, the positive values mm. which we should be promoting. If that means engineering a future in which humans no longer exist, that's fine. He says, in general, we don't always uh, lament the fact that we move from one thing to another. The transition from childhood mm. to adulthood, for example, mm. he says, gives us a model. We know that when you become an adult you're in very ways many ways completely different to being a child but it's good it's progress so there are those people who overtly embrace Mm. that but i suppose what's more interesting perhaps are the people who who don't overtly do that but by implication they do and i wonder whether it links with this idea of progress Mm. i mean if there's one recurring Mm. theme in your recent work it's Mm. the uh, the myth of progress Mm. and it seems that is it the case that you know uh, the desire for progress kind of it has to necessarily, I guess, um, mm. express some real deep dissatisfaction with how we are now. So yeah. there is a sort of a, a, there has to be a kind of a real, not, if not quite loathing of the present, but it's kind of a correlation between a dream of a much better future and a real kind of disliking for the way things are now. I think that's true and very important. Part of the book deals with H.G. Wells and Joseph Conrad said of Wells, in fact said two Wells, he said, you want to improve the human species, but you don't love it. I love the human species, but I have no hopes of its improvement. In other words, if you think that humans are what they are, and that they're not basically alterable, and that even perhaps some of the most valuable features of them come from their flaws, their imperfections, then you will have a kind of limit on your idea of progress. That's to say, you won't want a type of progress, any type of progress which involves humans ceasing to be what they are and what they have been. And I, as against Bostrom, I would say that the, the, the discontinuity involved in ceasing to be human and becoming a bolt of lightning or a computer program is bigger than the discontinuity involved in growing up. When you're a child, true, you're not the human you would later be. And even in I mean, later life, I think, one can go through several phases. I mean, there are people I've met and read about and, and so on who've had almost several different lives within the compass of a single human lifetime. But they still remain a human being. They still have all the attributes and frailties of a human being, even if their lives have changed completely. Whereas if you lose the body or you become something completely different, it's more tantamount to death. 
or a kind of death or a kind of extinction. And so I think here, but I'm glad you point to this idea of progress because it is terribly important. And let me just say something briefly about that. I think we shouldn't think of progress in terms of inevitability. The dispute is not whether progress is inevitable or not. Obviously, it isn't, and practically no believer in progress has ever said it was inevitable. It's not even that progress is not reversible. Most believers in progress say that progress that's been achieved can be reversed. It obviously has been. It's been reversed, by the way, on almost any account of progress in the lifetime of every single person in this room. One of the marks of ethical progress, I think, was the prohibition of torture. Torture never disappeared, of course. It went on, but it was prohibited. Ten years ago, if you'd said the prohibition would be relaxed by the world's greatest liberal power, if you'd said that the vice president of that uh, would defend torture, as Cheney has later has defended um, waterboarding, you'd be laughed at. I know that because I did say that, and I was laughed at. Uh, I even wrote one or two. I didn't predict the exact persons, but I did say that I thought that could happen. It even might well happen. You're laughed at. But, uh, so no one believes that progress is inevitable or irreversible. But what believers in progress, including the ones discussed in this book, do believe in is that as long as the growth of human knowledge continues, then ethical and political advance will follow in due course, eventually. Not necessarily immediately or in some automatic way, but over time, they can't imagine a world, which I suggest to you might be the world we now live in, in which knowledge grows and accelerates while the world becomes more barbaric and cruel. That's what they can't imagine. And in other words, they can't imagine the reality that we actually live in day by day. And that's because there is a profound myth going all the way back to Socrates. You might say Socrates didn't believe in progress, but he did believe that knowledge of the good, knowledge in general, knowledge of truth, made people better, made people adopt a better form of life. I don't believe that. I think the, the Genesis myth, the myth in which eating of the apple of knowledge, once you've eaten it, you can't uneat it, you're stuck with it, stuck with the knowledge, is a deeper myth, which is that knowledge is ethically ambiguous. Whatever the knowledge is, it can be used for good and bad purposes. And given that humans are extremely complicated and internally conflicted and even flawed animals, we can be certain that knowledge will be used for bad purposes as well as good purposes. The most we can hope to do is tilt the balance a bit. I mean, there's an interesting case of uh, people who study economics um, apparently almost straight away become more selfish. And there are quite good studies on this, but I suppose one could question whether that's because they're getting knowledge or whether it's because they're getting a certain dogma. No, it's, but, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, very good, it's a very good example. I mean, uh, in general, as we've learned from the last few years, economics has very, very little like, predictive power but it has very high predictive power when applied to the behavior of economists. And one of the reasons for that is economists internalize the ideas of economics yeah. and, and at least a certain type of economics. Not that, by the way, embraced by the great, really greatest economics. Keynes didn't think like this. John Stuart Mill didn't think like this. Um, Adam Smith or Ricardo, they didn't think like this. But a lot of economists think that human motivation can be worked out in terms of humans as separate sort of utility maximizers. Or, and if you think that way, then you might start planning your own life that way. I mean, another theme is the persistence of what we might call religious impulses mm. when officially religion has been given up. Mm. And I think that also relates perhaps to this sort of misanthropic element we were mm. talking about earlier, because it seems to me that one of the things which sort of leads to the misanthropy is that actually people are often 
focusing on the improvement of the species. Mm. It's the species is yes. the unit they're looking at, yes. not the individual life. Yes. I don't know if you'd agree with this mm. or not, but I wonder if that's because in the absence of a, a transcendent mm. meaning, of something mm. greater than ourselves, we can believe in that comes from religion. To believe in the species mm. gives us something transcendent because the species yes. is greater than ourselves. And so it's a kind of quasi-religious idea, which, which yes. doesn't have any official sort of like metaphysical baggage. I think you're quite right, June. I mean, the species, humanity is, I think, about as elusive as God. I mean, what we actually know are each other, particular humans, millions and millions, billions and billions of them with different goals, aspirations, dreams, fantasies. Internally, every one of us conflicted. That's what we actually know. But the advantage of a belief in the species is that out of this immense confusion, you might say richness, there is, as it were, something going on, a kind of moral agent, a moral drama. I mean, People have said this to me, you know, when I wake up in the morning, they say I feel part of a, a vast movement of human advance. I'm jolly good. I hope it cheers you up all day. Um, and they say, again, some of my views, they say, well, you know, if I believe what you did, I wouldn't get up, to which my response is usually, well, stay in bed longer. Um, you, might, you might find a better reason to get up if you stayed in a bit longer. But what I mean, what it sort of reveals is, what it, I think it reveals is that what religion gave was the idea of being an actor in a universal drama. And the drama was not just any old drama. It wasn't ultimately, in the case of Christianity, a Greek drama, which ends in unredeemed tragedy. It was a drama of redemption. You're part of something which is going on. You have a role. Whereas, if you think there isn't humanity, I mean, after all, Darwinism, I mean, there are species as a scientific category in Darwinism, but they're blurred and they change. And I mean, they're not entities that control anything. There isn't some species of the tiger which is back there controlling the the evolution of the tiger, as it were. There are just millions and millions of separate tigers and... uh, interacting with each other. And if you take that view, it's not that you have no meaning in your life, it's just that your meaning becomes a matter for you and the people you're engaged mm. with. It becomes that your meaning is, is the meaning that you build or discover or create or find in the course of your life. And I prefer that, I mean, actively. I don't see that as an impoverished view of the world, partly because I don't want to be a minor character in someone else's drama. Yeah. I don't want to be someone who's blown up or, uh, or forcibly liberated or forcibly converted to something or other, just because that gives the person who's doing it to me meaning in their lives. I want them to have meaning in their lives, but not by destroying the, one, the meaning in my life. Yeah. I don't want to be conscripted to their silly drama of human advance any more than I want to be forced into some silly theological picture in which I'm condemned. By the way, I just read a book on Savonarola, the um, Puritan um, Dominican friar who became de facto leader of Florence back in the 15th century. And as he was being burnt, because he eventually fell foul of his supporters, it's reported that someone from the crowd ran forward with a lighted brand and, and said, now I can burn you the way you threatened to burn me. And I think it's kind of rather sort of horrific, but I mean, uh, why should any of us uh, allow ourselves to be part of other people's scripts of human events? I think the reason is that it's just kind of a way of securing meaning in our lives. If we think there is this vast process of advance and we're part of it, then that gives us, as it were, almost a script we can think we can read from. I quite like the idea that you know, the choice is whether we prefer to be like a, an extra in a grand drama or have a leading role in a minor soap opera. And uh, accepting that life is a minor soap opera is, I guess, a sobering thought, isn't it? That's it for this podcast. John Gray's book, The Immortalisation Commission, is published by Alan Lane in the UK and Farah Strauss and Giraud in the United States. You can keep up to date with me by following the Microphilosophy Twitter feed at microphilosophy.net 
and also at julianbagini.com. My thanks to the Bristol Festival of Ideas and the Arnolfini Arts Centre for their cooperation with this podcast. And so, until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.